We live in an age of skepticism, don't we? Uh, That skepticism is justified in many cases because of the abuse of power, and other times it's uh, at least perceived justified because of the perceived abuse of power. Uh, Abuse of power by people who are in authority uh, can lead to some very wrong conclusions, however. There are fathers, for example, who abuse their children. This does not mean we should give up on fatherhood. There are politicians who abuse their offices. This does not mean that we should give up on having government. There are police who have acted badly. This does not mean we should abolish the police. And there are elders in churches who have abused their office, dishonored the Lord Jesus, wounded God's people. But the answer is not to abandon the Scripture's command to have elders in the church. Rather, it means all the more that we should look to the Scriptures for guidance on what elders should be. When we have fathers who father rightly, politicians who govern justly, police who enforce our laws righteously, and elders who steward God's church uprightly, we are all blessed The answer to rotten leadership is not anarchy. The answer to rotten leadership is a return to the Bible. So I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, we're in this series in Titus, what the true Christian should know and live by. And we looked last week at part 1 of whom should the true Christian follow? Now we're in part two of that. We'll be looking at verses seven through nine of Titus chapter one. To briefly review where we went last week, uh, in thinking about this question, whom should the true Christian follow, we see that in verse five, God gives leaders to his church so that the true Christian can know whom to follow. And then in verses six and the first part of seven, God reveals the qualities that must must be present so that the true Christian can know whom to follow. We looked at verse 5, what it meant to be, uh, excuse me, verse 6, what it meant to be above reproach, and what it means in family life with marriage and children. And we looked at how an overseer, an elder, is a steward, God's steward, the primary job of an elder is to be God's steward. That is, it's not the elders, it's God's, but God has an entrustment that has been given to the elder. And this job as a steward of God is not because the elder or elders are the most gifted or even the most qualified. It's not because they are people of influence. It's not because they are well-known or wealthy or have been in the church for a long time. It's not because it's their turn to do it. But to be a steward entrusted with God's church is for the glory of God and of His Son, Jesus Christ. And that brings humility. It brings a dependency upon God. It brings prayerfulness, Lord, help. It brings joy, 
over being able to be used by the Lord in such a way and sorrow over the brokenness that exists in this world and our own incapacity to fix it. It brings both ownership, a sense of belonging, and in the sense of being a steward, but it also brings a lack of ownership. It's not about the elder and the building up of his kingdom. So, that's where we were last week in thinking about God giving leaders to his church so that the true Christian can know whom to follow, the qualities that must be present above reproach, what it meant in marriage and family life, and what it meant to be an elder, to be God's steward. This morning, we're going to continue this in looking at verses 7 through 9 and see what above reproach means in personality and character and what it means as we look at verse 9 in teaching and protecting God's Word. In doing so, we'll have a fuller picture of what it means to be an elder in Christ's church. But more than that, I want every person to look at these characteristics and recognize, aren't these all characteristics that every believer should aspire to and even possess? To be able to see that we would grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that every man and woman and boy and girl sees these things as ways for the grace of God to be at work in our hearts so that we are transformed, we're changed. And so let's look at these verses. Please stand for the reading of God's Word this morning, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. We'll just pick it up at verse 5 and read through verse 9, even though today we're just going to be looking at verses 7 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you, if anyone is above reproach. Uh, The husband of one wife and his children are, we mentioned last week that it's uh, probably better to translate faithful or trustworthy. ESV translated his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an elder, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Please have a seat. So this above reproach gets repeated twice, doesn't it? In verse 6, anyone is above reproach, and it talks about marriage and family. And then in verse 7, it says, once again, an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. And now it gives character and personality qualities for an elder of Christ's church. So we're going to look at what above reproach means in personality and character for an elder The first one, as given there in verse 7, 
he must not be arrogant. The first character quality is that he be not arrogant. It means not self-pleasing, not self-willed, not insistent upon one's own way. And it's not just about being headstrong or stubborn, though it does mean that. It means that it's not all about him. There's no kingdom building in the man trying to build his own world or kingdom for the applause or the attaboys or uh, some sense of approval. It's all about rather a surrender to Christ as Christ builds his kingdom, not arrogant. Secondly, not quick-tempered. Literally, this means not soon angry. Now, there are, to be sure, times to be angry, but they are few, and even that righteous anger must not surface with a suddenness or immediacy. And quick-tempered means that one easily surfaces anger, even justified anger. This should not be either in person or online. (laughs) Have you ever had those occasions where you're ready to fire something off in response and you're like, wait a minute here, you know? Not quick-tempered. Quick-tempered responses can lead to even greater misunderstandings. Uh, I hope you recognize that communication is only partially with words, isn't it? Uh, Even what we're doing right now is communication. So you are evaluating not just my words, but my body language, the emphasis I give things, the expressions that I have, and my gestures. And I am evaluating you. Are they listening? Are they paying attention? And there's a few people here that are going, I'm back in, you know, right? Right? The point is that communication is only partially with words. And so if a person is quick-tempered, that says something about the faith, doesn't it? That is disparaging to the gospel. Third characteristic is uh, not a drunkard. Literally, this means not beside wine. The man must not be known as ha- of of having alcohol as the common means of human fellowship. Now, we need to be careful on this qualification in our nation with its rather unique historical relationship to alcohol. On the one hand, this qualification means more than that the man never gets drunk. It means that alcohol is not his common means of human interaction, not beside wine. On the other hand, it means less than never drinking alcohol. Now, there are good reasons to avoid alcohol altogether, but that is not what is being promoted here in this passage. Rather, it is about not having alcohol as the common means of human interaction. The fourth quality is not violent. 
literally not a striker. Uh, This involves first that the man is not physically violent. There are many cases, sad to say, even in the Christian church, where there are there is violence in homes but it is not known because it happens in the hidden place of the home so it is important that those who are at the receiving end of such violence that they are empowered to speak to trusted leaders about their abuse and how can that happen if the elder himself is a violent person. He will automatically be disposed to downplay any such violence. Because after all, if he does it, it's okay, you know? And so this is why this is so important for an elder, but indeed for every believer not to be violent. So far, we've seen everything in the negative, right? Not arrogant. Not quick-tempered, not a drunkard, not violent. There's one more no, not. Not greedy for gain. The longing for more must not be in the elder's heart. The longing for more money or more prestige or more respect or more… The the longing for more… must not be in the elder's heart. If it is, it will be too easy to think of the position of elder as a means to gain that thing that is longed for, whether it is, in the world's eyes, legitimate or illegitimate. Give you an example. Church leadership is not the place to build your business contacts. Church leadership is not the place to find a way to steal the church's money. One of them is kind of regarded as more or less legitimate, and the other is regarded more or less not legitimate. But the Bible says no to both ambitions. So these five negatives, not arrogant, not quick-tempered, not a drunkard, not violent, not greedy for gain, are what John Stott calls these really important issues for the true Christian to avoid getting tripped up. Here's how Stott describes them. Pride, temper, drink, power, money. And if you think about it, you would see not just in churches, but in literally every institution, where leadership fails, it all too frequently fails in one of those five areas. Arrogance, quick-tempered, drink, power, and money. Who should the true Christian listen to? (laughs) He He or she should listen to those who have those five under control. Now, Paul goes on to give six positive characteristics. He's given five in the negative. Now, let's look at the six positive ones. Verse 8, hospitable. 
This literally means loving strangers. It's not just about being friendly. When you think of the word hospitable, quite often you think of a personality, like a, a, an outgoing personality. No, that's not what's being described here. It's not even about being friendly or hospitable to those in the church whom you know. That's not what's being described. Rather, an elder is one who seeks out how to be hospi hospitable to those he does not know, whether they are believers or unbelievers. Uh, an elder is one who seeks out the stranger to him, the one he does not know. Second, a lover of good. So not just a lover of strangers, but a lover of all that is good. This involves the discernment of knowing exactly what is good and what is not in order to love only the good. And it's hoped, of course, that those who our elders have that quality of loving what is good, and then others will look at that and say, I can imitate that person because I know they're following Christ by the, by the things that they love. It should be said of an elder, he likes all the right things, and he seems unaffected by so much that others get ensnared by. Hospitable, lover of good. Next one, self-controlled. That means sound-minded. There's an earnestness about an elder that is attractive. Uh, he can have fun, but he's not a clown about the things of God. Fourth one, upright. This is a really important word in the New Testament. It means righteous. It means it's a person who's bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. There is a declaration of righteousness because the, their sin has been taken from them and laid on Christ, and Christ has taken his righteousness and clothed him in it. And it shows in how they live. They live as a blood-bought follower of Jesus Christ. To follow up on that, to deal with not just the position of the elder as an upright person in being clothed in Christ's righteousness, there is the next quality of holiness. That is, they are unpolluted and set apart from worldliness because Christ matters more to them than anything. And then lastly, disciplined. It means that the person is restrained. They're in check. They have self-control in the appetites of life. So these five negative characteristics and six positive characteristics form the personality and character for an elder of Jesus Christ's church and when we see those characteristics in people, we know that as true believers in Jesus, we can listen to them, and they're going to give us what's really sound and solid. They're not arrogant, not quick-tempered, not a drunkard, not violent, not greedy for gain. 
but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. This is the personality and character for an elder, and indeed it should be for every believer. Let's look now at verse 9. What does above reproach mean in the teaching and protecting God's Word for an elder? Verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy Word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Hold firm to the trustworthy Word as taught. This word trustworthy is the same word that's used up in verse 5, or verse 6, I'm sorry, that's translated believers. His children are believers. And it was there that I said that I felt like the word was mistranslated by the ESV, and it should be his children are faithful or trustworthy. The word is translated, I think, rightly here in verse 9 to say trustworthy or faithful. He's holding firm to a word that is trustworthy. You know, these days there are so many sources of information. Where are you going to go? And the elder in Jesus' church needs to go to the trustworthy word of God as taught. It's an interesting phrase, as taught. It means literally according to the teaching. There's a standard of teaching. Already by the time that Paul is writing to Titus, there is a body of faithful truth from the apostles to the church. Already that body of truth exists. Now it isn't in complete form like we have in the New Testament yet, but already by the time Paul is writing his letters, there is this body of truth that needs to be taught. Let me take you on a little journey through some of Paul's writings to help you see this. Romans chapter 6 verse 17. Thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. There's a standard of teaching. Romans 16, 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. There's a standard of teaching. 1 Timothy 1.10, talking about sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. There is a body of teaching. 2 Timothy 1.13, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. 2 Timothy 2.2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So there is this body of truth that already exists by the time Paul is writing Titus, and he's saying that elders in the church must hold firm to the trustworthy word according to the standard of teaching as it already exists. Hold firmly. Never let go of it. There's a lot of people who will hold things 
the way I loved what Wynne was talking about when he was talking about hell a few weeks ago. He says, do we hold hell as a thin belief or a thick belief? A lot of people who want to say, yeah, yeah, I know what the Bible says, but there's this other stuff that's more important about how to have fun and enjoy life and be happy and get, do, su- succeed in your job and in your family and all this. And, and Paul is saying to Titus, appoint elders who will hold firm to the trustworthy word according to the standard of teaching that already exists. Hold firmly Never let go of it. Now, why? Why should you do that? Well, he gives the two purposes here in verse 9. First, so that that elder may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Without this body of teaching, there's nothing to pass on. All we're passing on is a social club at that point. We are, every generation of Christians is one generation from extinction. Every generation of believers is one generation from extinction. If this body of truth is not held on to and taught and passed on, Christianity it ceases to exist. The focus, I have to sadly say, the focus of the past generation of teaching in evangelicalism in general, has been abysmal. Abysmal. Light fair about how to be happy, how to have a fulfilled life, how to be wealthy, how to look good and lose weight have dominated. Is it any wonder that an entire generation of people are growing up thinking that there is a mindless emptiness to Christianity. And so, Paul says, appoint elders, Titus, who must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Second purpose. And also to rebuke those who contradict it. Without a standard of teaching, there's no means, as John Stott puts it, to expose, contradict, and confound error. Has it ever occurred to you, why should we believe one doctrine over another? We are cast adrift on a sea of subjectivity without an objective standard by which everything is measured. You know, even our government has an office of weights and measures by which we have standards to say what certain lengths, what is an inch, what is a meter, what is a pound, what is a kilogram. (laughs) We have an office that establishes those things. And everything gets measured from that. For the believer, for the leader in Christ's church, when we ask who should the true Christian listen to, the answer is the one who holds 
firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he can rebuke those who contradict it. Those worth listening to know this objective standard well. They hold ferociously to it. They are able to teach it, and they are able to refute those who contradict it. Now, there will be people who will say, well, the Bible, you know, it's got thousands of different translations. There's a thousand different ways that you can interpret it. it and, and, and what they want, what they're doing when they say that, tr- take this, please take this to heart. What they're doing when they're saying that is doing what, what the devil did in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve. Did God really say? They're trying to cast doubt in your mind and in your heart about whether or not you can believe the Word of God and whether or not the Word of God is actually understandable. I'm going to throw out a big word for you. We need to hold to what's called the perspicuity of Scripture. That's a big word that just means you can understand this book. (laughs) You can understand it. It doesn't take a brain surgeon or a rocket scientist to figure out what we've just read today. It doesn't. And yet there are people who would have you believe it's so variety and understanding and interpretations, you can never understand it. You can never get to the truth. So why should you even focus on it? And instead, what we ought to focus on is culture and my life and my world and how to make my life and my world better. And let me tell you, that is a road to hell. Elders hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to refute those who contradict it. John Calvin, in his commentary on Titus, had these words to say. A pastor, and by that he means an elder, needs two voices. One for gathering the sheep, and the other for driving away wolves and thieves. The scripture supplies him with the means for doing both. And he who has been rightly instructed in the scriptures will be able both to rule those who are teachable and to refute the enemies of the truth. This is a person worth listening to. Now, as we look at these things, aren't you convicted? Don't you look at them and say, well... No, 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 I, I fail here, I fail here, I fail here. <laughs> but isn't there something, if you're a believer, that causes you to say, oh, but, but God helping me, I long for more. I long for more. Holy Spirit, do that work of soul surgery in my heart that I may grow in grace and the knowledge of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is as we do that that we see joy that happens in the Christian's life. So as we look at this list, every one of us 
has to recognize, well, I've failed, but by God's grace, I can grow. And I'm going to seek His face, and I'm going to turn from my wicked ways, and I'm going to embrace the cross. Because you see, it's at the cross where we have the power for change. If you've never met Jesus as your Savior, you look at this list, you go, man, I, I fall down on every one of these things. Did you know that Jesus Christ can change your life? He can take all your sin upon Himself. He did it at the cross. And as you put your faith in Him, He'll give you a new heart, new longings, new desires. The Bible calls it a new life. It's what the Bible calls being born again, born anew. And then you will see what God can do in your heart. Would you pray with me? If you would like to trust Jesus right now, you can do that. Just say, Lord, I look at this list and I, I'm guilty of every one. Forgive me. I confess them to you. And now I ask you, Jesus, to forgive me of my sin by what you did at the cross in shedding your blood for me. You took my place. You took my punishment. You took my guilt and laid it upon yourself. I ask you now to give me your righteousness, a new heart, a new life, and new ambitions to serve you. Lord, I want to thank you that everyone who calls on the name of the, of the Lord in that way will be saved from their sin and saved for a life of joy and service with you and an eternal life that never ends. Now, Lord, for those of us who are believers, we look at this list and we say, Lord, I've, I've drifted, I've run away from you. Forgive me. Restore my fellowship with you. Cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And equip me, empower me by your Holy Spirit to have these characteristics be true in my life, that my life might be a joy and a glory to God and His church. Enable me to love you in that way, O oh Lord. And so, God, we, no matter where we are, we enlist your aid, we ask for your help that we may grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.